It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive podcast into genre television. Hello, everyone. I am Josh Wiggler, your host here on Series Regular. And for the next few weeks, we are all in on one thing and one thing only, Game of Thrones. Consider this your weekly window into the world of Westeros as we thoroughly explore each episode of the Emmy-winning epic's final season. This week, it's full-on war at the Battle of Winterfell, the centerpiece of director Miguel Sapochnik's The Long Night. It should go without saying that if you have not seen the episode yet, you should turn this podcast off right about now. In case your phone is buried deep in your pocket or otherwise very far out of arm's reach, allow me to provide you a little bit of spoiler-free buffer zone by introducing a series regular special guest star to help me break down this week's episode of Thrones. That would be THR TV critic and TV's top five co-host, Daniel Feinberg. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. How are you, my friend? I am okay, Josh. My pupils have either undilated or redilated after <laughs> staring into the darkness all weekend. I don't know which one it would actually be though any headaches uh, neither headaches nor nausea <laughs> that, that's good as long as it's a nausea free zone i think that we are uh, we are starting the podcast off on the right foot and the good thing about a podcast is you only need your ears you don't need your eyes so seeing is not believing in the case of this particular podcast it is just listening and you are all about to listen to dan and i take on the long night Clocking in at 82 minutes, it is the longest episode of the final season of Game of Thrones and the longest episode in Game of Thrones history. It is also, as we are alluding to, the darkest episode in Game of Thrones history, according to several corners of the fandom, even if the story itself ends on a fairly light note for the future of mankind. And here's the big spoiler in case you haven't turned the podcast off. It's coming. Arya Stark has killed the Night King. The White Walkers are dead. They are all gone. And we have only sustained a few human casualties as a result. All due respect to the Theon Greyjoys of the world. Dan, let's survey the damage. Uh, from a broader view, what was your take on this episode? I mean, for heaven's sakes, thousands of Dothrakis are dead. Thousands. We just don't. We <laughs> just don't care about them. Callous? We are not giving. We are not giving them a moment of silence. We are not acknowledging any of their names because, let's be honest, the show did not give any of them any names. So yeah, whatever. We don't really care so much about them. I should note, by the way, that while Josh may have said that this is a podcast, so you're listening to us, Game of Thrones cinematographer Fabian Wagner would like you to know that if you can't see us right now, it's not his fault. It's your fault. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know that I love being told that it's my fault that the episode, uh, The Long Night, was was too dark. I feel like uh, that critique, which originates, as as Dan mentions, from cinematographer Fabian Wagner in a, an article published by Wired UK, that we just we needed to adjust our screens so that we could see the episode properly, does not feel... It, it, I mean, it's a personal problem in the sense that I suffered for it, but it doesn't feel like I am the agent of that particular chaos. It's a it's a strange argument for anyone to make, and it's also a backward argument for anyone to make, especially a cinematographer, to be simply unaware that he's making a TV show that is being watched in myriad ways, some of which are clearly ideal and unquestionably allow people to see things perfectly, but he still is making a TV show that some people watched on their laptops, some people watched on TV of various qualities, some people probably watched on their phones, some people watched on their Apple watches. You cannot say that if you do not have the perfect technological way of watching this episode, that it becomes a you problem. You have to be aware that you're making TV for people who watch TV a lot of different ways. So I, I heard from a bunch of different people. I certainly had my experience of watching the episode and my experience of watching any episode of Game of Thrones these days is, you know, half in my laptop as I am typing furiously to try and accurately assess what is happening in the story and so that I have accurate notes to refer to as I embark on the myriad articles that I have to write about this show. And so looking up from laptop to screen, the darkness certainly registered, but I had other things on the mind as well. And I heard from plenty of other folks in my life and other corners of the internet who were watching the episode, many of whom had that same critique that it was just too dark to see, some of whom didn't have that problem at all. I suppose they know how to properly work their television sets. What was your experience like watching the episode and how much of an impact did that have on your enjoyment of it? Is it is it a separate problem? I mean, it's certainly either way. It's a separate issue from whatever is transpiring on a story level, but did it impact any enjoyment of the story that that you were able to have? Well, one thing I will say is that I, I, to some degree, as I've been thinking over it in the past couple days, have kind of shifted the blame from the cinematography to a combination of, you know, sort of the technologically nebulous, quote unquote, compression issues, and whether that relates to my TV or to my cable service or whatever, but really much more right. to the editing. And and I think I, I think I came down probably feeling like the editing was my major problem with this episode and that it produced the incoherence much more than the darkness or lack thereof, because any time that they actually were able to hold on a shot for any prolonged period of time, I, I saw it perfectly or... If I didn't see it perfectly, I accepted completely that I wasn't supposed to see it perfectly because this was a thing that was taking place in nighttime in the middle of a blizzard, and that's fine. But the question that I kept coming back to is, on one hand, I can completely acknowledge that it's a goal to attempt to simulate the fog of war and to attempt to simulate chaos and to make that your perspective, but sometimes intention is not always the best thing for a show to do, and there were definitely times I felt that it was not the best thing they could have done in this episode. And then other times I thought, ooh, that's a really, really gorgeous image. And I, I'm very impressed they were able to do that. So I went both yeah, ways. Th- I mean, there were 
There were a lot of those. I, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of like color corrected or lighting adjusted images of, you know, for example, the the dragons above the clouds, and you see them contrasted against the moonlight, and that's, you know, it's spectacular stuff. And these are the kind of images that you've been waiting, uh, or at least I feel like I've been waiting to see on Game of Thrones from the very beginning. Another great one is when the the fog of snow is coming in from the forest as the the White Walkers are, are coming out, and the only illumination that you are getting is the dragon fire. There's just some of these images that I felt were really fantastic and really do live up to, at least from the book's title, uh, really did live up to that sort of epic song of ice and fire billing. I hear what you're saying on some of the editing choices, and I think that just kind of overall, you know, the, the mandate that seems to have been in place was to engulf you as the soldiers were engulfed in that fog of war feel and to have that same level of confusion that everybody else on the battlefield is seeming to have. So even like before we're, we're getting into kind of the story beats, which we'll, we'll certainly get into in a, in a much deeper way very soon here, I feel like maybe, maybe that choice and th that choice to kind of put you so firmly in the headspace of what it would have been like to be there on that night and just filled with chaos, unable to see the dead coming right at you. And that combined with kind of the hype levels surrounding this episode, that this was going to be a battle that put the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings Two Towers to shame, that this was going to be the most incredible thing ever committed to film as far as an epic fantasy fight scene. Probably, uh, th that's a high bar to clear, Dan. I don't know if it's clearable. I don't know if it's clearable, but I still, I you know, I do not want to take anything away from the scale on which this episode was working. And so whatever my complaints about it are, there's no question that this was the sort of ambitious piece of epic television that is probably basically without precedent on the small screen. So whatever problems I have with a lot of the human beats, the story beats, whether or not any of the big deaths or whatever hit home, I, I don't want to take anything away from the fact that this was obviously a really impressive thing that they were able to do that really does raise the bar on what television can do in the epic space. And so you have something like Amazon's hypothetical someday J.R. Tolkien show, whatever that's going to be, whenever that's going to be. And, and definitely this is something that raises the bar impressively for that show when it comes and anything else subsequently. All right, well, let, let's talk about the story of what went down in The Long Night. So from a story perspective, the biggest headline of the night is that Arya Stark is the one who gets to kill the Night King. Uh, the White Walkers are no more. Uh, Dan, when we spoke earlier in the season a couple of podcasts ago, you had locked in your official prediction of Arya Stark sitting on the Iron Throne at the end of it all, albeit wearing a different person's face, if, I, if I'm remembering the details correctly. Correctly. And I don't know if you were semi-serious or semi-joking <laughs> back then, but right now the sky feels like the limit for, for Arya. If she can kill the Night King, what can't she do? So seeing as she is one of your very favorite characters, were you happy to see Arya take down the Night King? Were you surprised? Were you some mixture of the two? Or maybe even were you not so pleased with this plot twist? I, I was entirely pleased. I don't know that I was quote-unquote surprised because... Somebody had to, and 
she seemed like as good an answer as any. Um, I, I do think, though, that it probably does cause me to somewhat adjust that semi-prediction, which I should emphasize was at least somewhat in jest, but still was, a yes. you know, <laughs> it was posited as a thing that might have amused me. I, you know, to me, this was as big a moment for Arya as a character could possibly have. It was as climactic a moment for her character arc, but also... She she can't really go any further than this. You know, she's she's not now going to get to also be the uh, the hero at King's Landing. She's not going to get to you. You can't have a bigger moment than killing the Night King and saving humanity there. There's nothing that goes higher than that. And so that is my only concern is that uh, is that to speak about everything being up to date in Kansas City and Oklahoma terms, she's gone about as far as she can go. And so the question of where that character who I love so very much can go next, somebody else needs their moment to shine. I just hope that doesn't mean that something bad has to happen to Arya to allow that for someone else to have their moment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if something bad has to happen to her to allow somebody else that moment to shine. But I definitely do think that something bad is going to happen to Arya Stark. Uh, you know, I, I've been holding to that since since before the season that I, I really I think that Arya Stark is such an agreed upon favorite character, even if certain corners of the Game of Thrones fandom are being particularly nasty in response to Arya right now. Even before this week, obviously coming out of a Night of the Seven Kingdoms, there were some really ugly responses to everything that happened with Arya and Gendry uh, and a lot of people who are who are really disappointed with Arya. Arya being the person who kills the Night King when I think that textually in the sense of, you know, maybe not the books as much as Game of Thrones, the show, I think that there's a lot of benchmarks that really got us to this moment that when you when you rewatch or you, you know, you you sort of revisit some of the, the, the biggest story points along Arya's adventure, uh, the fact that she is somebody who's been trained at the knee of so many different killers along the way and, you know, one of the first uh, lessons she learns is to not say today to the god of death and for this to be the person who takes on the show's avatar for death the god of death and to be the person who ends that conflict makes so much sense to me um, but there's so much infused in that character that uh, certainly David Benioff and Dan Weiss want us to feel, even if that impact is not washing over the entirety of Game of Thrones nation, that I think that the stock on Arya, as you mentioned, is higher than ever, and can it possibly rise further? And are we being set up for whatever the kind of ultimate point of Game of Thrones is? We have to consider what that is, with the White Walker threat being dealt with halfway into the final season. Is it that the the human forces of nature uh, are are deadlier to consider than something like the Night King, and just because Arya is able to destroy the scariest seeming force in all of Westeros, is she still susceptible to something a lot more human, like a Cersei Lannister, if she tries to set her sights on her? So I think that we are, even though we are, you know, who am I to guess against Arya, to bet against Arya after she kills the Night King, but I feel like we are being positioned to feel pretty safe towards her only for another shoe to drop in a couple of episodes. I would be very sad about that. Now, my, my question for you, because you sort of pay more attention to this, did you, in the aftermath of this episode, see anybody actually making the dreaded Mary Sue accusation against her, or did you only see Twitter rising up against 
people hypothetically having said such a thing because by the time I logged on to Twitter on Monday, Twitter was all, what kind of idiot would call Arya Mary Sue? And there, nobody was actually quoting anybody. Nobody was citing any specific tweets. So I kind of was wondering if it was one of those things where one stupid person with 50 followers said it and the entire world rose up to her defense as if she needed any defending because let's get real anyone who would call Arya Mary Sue has not been paying attention to a single second of this show but on the other hand I didn't see anyone say anything like that even close to in earnest did you? I saw enough people talking about how this is Jon Snow's fight and how can they take this away from Jon Snow. And enough people saying, you know, a lot of the complaints of Arya is literally coming out of nowhere to take this win, when within this very episode, they dedicate eight minutes, something close to 10 minutes to having Arya display all of the stealth skills that she learned at the knee of the House of Black and White as she is, you know, very quietly, stealthily moving through Winterfell to avoid detection, uh, let alone her entire story arc. Uh, so I, I think enough of those kinds of complaints um, that, uh, but but I think only from people who, in in my view, don't understand Game of Thrones the way that it ought to be understood, or don't understand the Arya arc the way that it ought to be understood. One thing that I'm seeing a lot of is a lot of people trying to kind of retroactively fit Jon Snow into having some sort of agency in killing the Night King. There's this kind of popular theory, I believe, owing origin to, to Reddit or some other forum, uh, <laughs> Uh, where there are, there are people talking about when John stands up against Viserion uh, towards the end of the episode, that instead of just screaming garbled screaming noises at the undead dragon, he is actually shouting at Arya to go, 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 so that she can get to the god's wood, and he's causing some kind of distraction, which is actual nonsense as as far as i am concerned but that nonsense theory is out there and is being re-reported and i suppose i am re-reporting it in so far as it exists and i find it to be nonsense okay it's a it's a dumb theory and it makes no sense with anything that we actually saw in the episode and you have to be fabricating basically whole cloth a scene that doesn't exist in order to make sense yes. of it granted though the way I understand the desire to do that is that otherwise you have to accept that for all of our heroes who have varying degrees of military skill and acumen and training, they had no strategy whatsoever for anything that happened in the entire episode and every bit of strategy that they had set up in the first two episodes of the season was dumb. And so if you give... Jon Snow, the agency that he actually was doing something of value in that moment, it suggests that maybe somebody had a plan at some point, as opposed to Arya simply freelancing and taking on the Night King by herself and saving the day on her own. So I understand why someone would want desperately to read strategy onto a strategy list behavior, because otherwise there was no strategy and it makes every person in Winterfell look dumb as hell because of how little strategy they had. And that was one of my actual problems with the episode, and I believe many people's problems. 
What about, uh, you know, let alone who killed the Night King, Just let's just take the fact that the Night King is dead and the White Walkers are dead. And, you know, one of the very first things that we ever see in Game of Thrones is the White Walkers. You know, the first sequence of Game of Thrones involves the White Walkers, and they are gone. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that that is now resolved. We are we are through White Walker territory at this point, and it happens midway through the season. Like, what are you? What are your feelings on where that leaves us here as we look down the barrel for the rest of Game of Thrones? I guess my my thought is in the same way that The Walking Dead has always been a show in which the zombies were a threat, but the the darker threat was the threat inside the human soul. I think it it wants to make clear that if you thought that the entire series was about a showdown between humans and zombies, you got that wrong because the entire series was a showdown between humans and humans, which is totally fair, except that one set of humans still has multiple dragons. And I continue to say, and will continue to say dragons are cheating. So uh, that, that has been my problem with the show for a long time that dragons are cheating. And uh, yeah, so that that's where I stand on it is that I, it was never really supposed to be the humans against the zombies that that wasn't even if the, that's where the show started. The zombies were an ephemeral threat, a symbolic threat, whatever it is. Uh, and the real threat is the real threat, as always, is us. And so we had to move on. I don't know if necessarily this was as messy as it probably could have been. I think ultimately this was probably too clean a defeat of zombie kind, except for if you happen to be one of the people whose job it's going to be to uh, to clean up Winterfell the day after this battle, because there's going to be a lot of blood and guck and bodies. It looks like they're just going straight to the to the funeral pyre approach based on the photos for episode four. So it'll be a lot of ash, a lot of <laughs> a lot of ash at Winterfell. I think we can look forward to on Sunday night. But we've got we've got three episodes left here in the final season without a single White Walker to worry about, presumably, unless there's, you know, like Cliff the White Walker was hanging back at HQ and he's gonna have to avenge off his friends. I don't think that that is something that is going to happen. But what do you imagine we're going to get into? with the back half of the final season. And what does it say to you about what the overall point of Game of Thrones is that this is dealt with? Is it really as simple as we now have to look inward and the problem was us all along? Because that's not simple. So I, I think that if, you know, the, again, dragons are cheating. And so the show's supernatural elements are are interesting and fun and cool and all that. But the, the show is still designed to be allegorical and whether it's the war of the roses or whatever you want it to be whatever it relates to if it's going to relate to human behavior it has to come down to humans because the white walkers other than if you buy into the entire 100 percent, this is a show about global warming thing which i don't know that really is a interesting or entertaining way to view the show. Like whether you want to view it as one of a myriad of things the show is about, that's fine. I, I don't think the show, the show should not be bottom lined as it's a show about climate change. That's, that's not a, that's not an illuminating piece of information. And even if it is, winter is not the, uh, is not the bad guy. The bad guy is what we did to cause climate change so, or basically human behavior. So I'm perfectly comfortable with that being what this comes down to. And it, it comes down to people's hunger for power, their appetite for power, whatever, as opposed to a battle against an anonymous adversary where their particular goal was verging on irrelevant because most of them had no agency 
anyway. And, th and that to me was what was another of the problems with this episode is that once the motivation of the adversary is just to overrun you and that's their only motivation and none of them have individual personalities or individual motivations or goals or whatever, it, it makes them less interesting. And so we kind of made the Night King into this huge badass and we're like, okay, he's the guy we can recognize. So he's the one who's cool. But yeah, I'm, I'm okay with it coming down to uh, Starks versus Lannisters, only there aren't very many Lannisters still with the Lannisters. I'm okay with that. It, how does the, does this feel like we're coming down to the last three episodes of the show that you recognize? I had I had been wondering for a long time if Game of Thrones was going to deliver a resolution to the White Walker conflict before it delivered a resolution to the human conflicts that have been part of the series from the very beginning, Stark versus Lannister, with at least a side order of Targaryen, or that was your main course, depending on how you ordered uh, and ate your meal. And now we have those those three ingredients are are still very very much in place, and I think. Insofar as you view Game of Thrones, the general, you view Game of Thrones as a climate change allegory, if that is how you view the White Walkers. I'm very much on board with what you're describing as, well, what causes a problem like that? That would be us as a people. That would be other human beings. That would be a conflict that itself needs to be untied. And walking out of this episode... What strikes me about, I think, some of the philosophy behind what the overarching story of Game of Thrones seems to be to me, you know, depending on on where it comes in for the landing is George R. R. Martin has often described A Song of Ice and Fire, his book series, as ending on a bittersweet note. And I think that the, the two mediums are going to be very different from one another should Martin finish the books. Fingers very much crossed. I think that if the, if the sweet aspect of the bittersweet ending that George R. R. Martin has in mind is this is what we can do when we come together. We can destroy something as impossible as the White Walkers. I think the final three episodes is going to be the bitter component that uh, at the end of the day, the stuff that sticks in our craw and the, the reasons why we are anxious and cynical and hate one another, that that might win out over the things that we are better than. And I'm, I'm curious to see what the ultimate resolution to a question like that is. But I think for that to be kind of the final conflict that Game of Thrones wants to explore with the Starks versus the Lannisters versus the Targaryens and what emerges from the rubble of that, I do feel like that's that's very core and very central to a lot of the story that we have been exploring from the very first episode of the show. Okay, so let, we, we've only talked, hmm, I feel like we haven't really discussed any of this week's big deaths or quote unquote big deaths. How, how did you feel about both the volume of major cast casualties and the handling of said casualties. Well, I, I think that the, you know, the big surprise of the episode is that we win, right? You know, the, the big shock of the long night, everybody heading into this episode expects that this is going to be the one where we suffer enormous casualties. This is where you lose your, your Podrick Pains, your Grey Worms. You could go as high as a Brienne of Tarth could, could go here. Maybe if you're feeling risky, you're betting on Jamie Lannister's life in this episode. And it's not like we didn't lose, you know, relatively big names. Theon Greyjoy is a, is a character who had a very full arc, and I really enjoyed what they did with him in this episode. Beric Dondarrion, who was, you know, the most inevitable person to die in the series, probably, given how 
how many times he had died before. He is finally gone. We lose Sir Jorah here. We lose Melisandre in this episode. Uh, tragically, we lose Lyanna Mormont. We very obviously lose someone like Dolores Ed. But that's that's essentially it. The Dothraki, again, I don't mean to be callous towards the Dothraki, but it's a, it, it's not maybe the, 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 the impact crater that a lot of people expected coming into this episode. That being said... We lost all of the White Walkers. We lost the Night King. That is a, a massive character to lose in this episode. So as far as my bloodlust is concerned, Dan, I think that I uh, was uh, appropriately met by this episode. How about yourself? Uh, just of the deaths, the only one that actually hit me on any level was Liana Marmont. She that was that was the one that hurt both because of her her youth and her infinite potential, but also you know it was it was a tough one to watch. And then even that, it kind of felt like they undermined that one by basically making Arya and the Night King into a restaging of that. You know, choking little girl, choking little girl. Whoop! Didn't pay attention to the hand with the knife. Dead. You know that, which is just not very creative choreography or scene setting but really the only one of the deaths that hit home for me in any way was liana i thought that the jorah stuff was the the degree to which uh daenerys was miserable about jorah's death was so far out of proportion to the amount that i cared that it became a little irksome that the music kept swelling or and that she kept sobbing whereas i'm like yeah okay fine that that was a character who had to go and the thing with Theon, where ultimately having, you know, kicked a lot of ass in in the courtyard of the Godswood for le the time leading up to that, basically, he just sort of walked up to the Night King and said, kill me to, to save another five seconds. You know, that was pretty much how he died. And that wasn't really all that powerful or interesting. Uh, you know, there were, there were, come on, Dolores Ed, how much were we really going to get emotional about that? He wouldn't have gotten emotional about it, so why should we? Like, I wanted more of the deaths to actually hit home in an emotional way for me, and I thought that for the most part, they ran right by them, through them, whatever. Uh, thousands of Dothrakis left dead with no motivation and no allegiances and were just sent off into the darkness and no one particularly cared. I don't really understand how certain people survived this episode. I don't know how Grey Worm survived this episode. I don't know how Jorah survived the first half of the episode. So some of that irked me a little. I, again, ultimately, everyone's gonna be like, why did Dan hate this episode so much? I don't I didn't hate the episode at all. Just when we're talking about it, the things that I want to nitpick tend to come to the surface versus the ooh pretty shot moments, which I had dozens of I just, you know, if we're talking, I'm gonna nitpick. It's how I work. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. I, I'll disagree with you on on Theon, especially. Uh, I I really I think that that's a really fulfilling end to to his journey. For this being the guy who you know is as a child captured by the Starks, that is going to leave him with some deep psych you know psychic trauma for his childhood into his early adulthood. He's an you know an a, an arrogant jerk to so many of the people that are around him. He gets to go back home as a young man, fancying himself uh, the right hand 
right-hand man to a king, and he is met with a lot of resistance by his father when he sees him for the first time in forever. He tries to do something really dramatic in order to win back his father's trust. It fails spectacularly. It makes him feel as weak as humanly possible. He does some truly dreadful, terrible things in the service of trying to impress somebody that he hasn't uh, any true, real reason that he should be trying to impress. It leads him to, to years of being imprisoned by the worst imprisoner that you can possibly imagine in the Boltons, in Ramsey Bolton especially. That arc speaks for itself, all of the horrible torture that we saw there. Even after he escapes, he is still feeling the physical and mental effects and emotional effects of that time in imprisonment and has that whole scene where he's jumping ship in season seven. He can't face a new monster. And here he is after all of that, after that big pep talk from Jon Snow at the end of season seven, he's rising up against those instincts. He's giving himself a second shot. He's back here in Winterfell in the place where he lived for so much of his life. And when he is once again confronted with a monster, with truly the avatar of death, the god of death, as Melisandre would describe the Night King, and knows that his own demise at this point is inevitable, rather than just stand there and wait to be stabbed, he charges into death. And maybe it's a little silly, a little hokey. Maybe strategically he could have come up with a little bit of a better plan if you want to pick those nits. But I, I love the way that that's the that that's the manner in which his story ends that he he finds the strength within himself to 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 meet death with open arms and to to charge at the the scariest imaginable creature in Westeros is a nice way for that to go and to have that be with Bran and to have that final encouragement of you're a good man Theon Greyjoy I welled up I thought that I thought that that was personally very moving I really liked that I, th I think that was probably a a better pitch and for the record I I think I like the arc a ton just in my mind, I think of most of the arc for Theon as ending last week, which I thought was an entirely satisfying end to the arc, but that also guaranteed his death in this episode. Sure, yeah. And so once the there's arc like, was a, over... There's an inevitability to it coming into this week, that if he's going to be on guard duty for Bran, you had a week to get get right with Theon Greyjoy dying. And and, and, I, and I totally had, um, I think your I think your point about him marching into death, though, is, you know, bravely and strongly is is a good point. How did you feel about the about the abrupt arrival, uh, deus ex machina helpfulness and then uh, oldness and withering away and disappearance of Melisandre? Did that feel like what the character deserved at this point or did you need more or less of her? No, I I loved the episode's use of Melisandre. I, I felt like it was a very appropriate end to that character. You know, she is somebody who we, we don't know where she's been for quite some time. The last time we saw her, I believe, was episode three of season seven, if I'm getting that right, where she is uh, at Dragonstone and she says she's going to sail off to Volantis and she'll be back in Westeros eventually and she will die there. Uh, and the last, you know, couple of times that we had seen her in season seven, there's a little bit of a shakiness to her confidence in season six you know the the final note that we leave her on is she's basically being chased out of winterfell don't come back here and now she returns and she's here for you know this is this is what it was all for you know every every terrible mistake that she had made along the way if they don't win on this evening then all of that really was for nothing and so there's a a confidence uh in the way that i felt like carice van houten played the character of this is it this is you know what hundreds of years of destiny have been building toward for this character paying off in this moment i really liked that sort of um 
a little bit of a bravado to the way that she was playing Melisandre. Of, uh, you know, if she if she saw everything coming, that it does make you wonder why she just sent the Dothraki off to their <laughs> to their collective demise. But she saw so much else of it coming, and when it was done. What else did she have to live for? She had already been alive for hundreds of years. So for her to kind of stalk off into the cold and call it a day, uh, I had I had no major issue with. Uh, and I, I liked it as a as a book ending note that the that the episode didn't quite begin with Melisandre's ter- uh, return to Winterfell. But that was the first major turn of the episode. And I, I thought that that was a, a, a nice image of her just kind of collapsing in a heap, sort of the, the avatar of our own collective exhaustion from having watched this 82-minute episode of television. Hey, I just went and watched Barry, which was fantastic. So I didn't. I still need to watch it. Yeah, I'm behind on uh, this week's Barry. No spoilers, please. Oh, it's it is it is such a spectacular episode, and and in its efficiency, to me, it put Game of Thrones to shame. But you know, everyone has different desires and expectations, and I think probably more people very clearly are in the Game of Thrones fulfills my needs camp than Barry fulfills my needs. It just happens that Barry is more the show that fulfills my needs i guess yeah if only uh barry the bold had been at the battle of winterfell perhaps it would have been a a, a totally different outcome altogether uh before we close out really quickly dan uh you know i wanted to ask you where we think game of thrones goes next i think we've already covered that uh do you have any do you have any feelings strongly one way or the other toward iron throne resolution you know we're, we're halfway into the final season of game of thrones at this point has the series expressed to you in any way where its head is at when it comes to the to the final notes it wants to leave us on in the nature of power on the nature of the Iron Throne in Westeros. Uh, anything new that you're thinking about in that regard based on where we were at the start of the season? I just think it feels more and more clear to me as we go that the solution is not going to involve somebody sitting on a throne in the last frame of the, the series. I, I think right. I, I feel more and more convinced of that. And so anything beyond that, I'm not sure of. I don't know if that means nobody in power at all. I don't know if that means that the entire government of Westeros is is upended and changed into more of a representative democracy. I don't have an answer to that, but I think more and more and more I've become convinced that anybody expecting the solution of this series to resolve with anybody sitting on the Iron Throne as a sign of somebody won this, I think that's the wrong approach to the entire thing and that and that is how i'm looking at it is that if we end up with somebody sitting on the throne smirking in the last shot of game of thrones i'm not going to feel in all likelihood like that was the right ending to the series i watched what is the the likeliness of that for you do you do you you think do you think right now based on what we've seen through three episodes that that's a particularly likely outcome that we will end with some sort of self-satisfied person uh being on the iron throne and there is some sort of you know slow pushback from that moment where we're supposed to be left with that as kind of this final i don't know either happy moment or sinister moment but either way the final lingering image there there's no way it's going to be a happy moment I, I don't think I don't think anyone is I don't think anyone involved in the show is naive enough to end with somebody sitting on the Iron Throne that we're supposed to think is good. I, I really don't think there's any chance of that. I can totally imagine somebody who clearly is is manifestly wrong sitting on the on the Iron Throne and that being the way things 
go or much more likely somebody who who isn't really prepared I, you know like if Jon Snow ends up on the Iron Throne I think Jon Snow is a ridiculous person to end up in charge of a country and it would be a little bit like <laughs> yeah and I think and I think it would be a little bit like the ending of the Robert Redford movie The Candidate where he turns to the the camera and says what do we do now I, I like that I guess I can see as being an answer I I just don't think it's going to be a simple happy ending someone on the throne ending you no I tend to agree with you I I you know more the more and more I think about it the the less I feel like my preseason prediction of Daenerys ruling happily on the iron throne I I don't I don't think that we're I don't think that we're anywhere remotely in the realm of that happening right now and I and I do tend to think that it's fairly likely that the iron throne itself is just melted down and liquidated for parts uh and is is not even uh is not even in in consideration anymore although that being said I I feel like we have such a, a high point of a victory at this point in the season that if there was ever a likeliness to Cersei Lannister just keeping the thing and everybody trying to go up against Cersei and then failing, it feels like a likelier outcome to me now than ever that we could we could see uh, some sort of nihilistic ending like that, which I would be very bummed out about, but I just don't think that it's impossible that we could end on such a note. Well, we've got three more weeks to find out. As always, thank you, everybody, for listening to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive genre TV podcast. Subscribe to the show on your various podcast platforms. Email your questions and suggestions to seriesregular at thr.com or tweet them to me at Round Howard. You could also tweet your theories and questions to Dan at The Fine Print on Twitter. You like that, right? You like the theories and the questions being sent your way, Dan? I like interacting with with uh, people on the interwebs. <laughs> All right. Well, interact with Dan. That is the way to do it. Dan and I have also been doing a Before the Storm weekly column that posts on Fridays on THR.com. So keep an eye out for that and keep an eye out for everything that we are doing. THR.com slash Game of Thrones for more columns, interviews. I spoke with the Night King this week, Dan. He was a very pleasant fellow. You'd be surprised. <laughs> he was a very nice guy. Very nice guy, Vladimir Furtick. You are, uh, you are living the dream. Josh Wiggler. <laughs> I'm having a good time. I am. Hope you are all having a good time as well. And we will be back with another episode of Series Regular next week. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. For sure. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.